Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? As no one condemned you. No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Amen. You may be seated. Well, first, I just want to express how thankful I am to everyone who was part of our kids' uh, area, our, our Fairview Kids uh, project. We had our final installment, and so these Two pillars that are out there have now become trees and all of the things are done. And so, so thankful for Pastor John and Beck Jones and our committee and everybody who's a part of that and all of you all who gave. Can we just celebrate that? It's incredible to see what was pictures now become a reality. And my kids have been so excited and they have loved it. And so they are just jealous of the younger kids who get to play more on the playground. So, but we're so thankful for that and just so thankful for the opportunity we have to welcome families, even some families I met this morning for the first time uh, with young kids. And this is such an incredible environment to do that. Well, this week, uh, so tomorrow Judson turns 11. And for those of you who are here a few weeks, I've confirmed that. It actually is tomorrow. And uh, so, uh, but we're very excited about that. But one of the, the words, and I, and I checked this with him, so he's okay with this, that we will say to him is, you are not the parent. <laughs> you ever have to say those words? He actually introduced himself when he was younger as co-parent uh, once upon a time. So... We are, we are reminding our children regularly, you are not the parent. And I think there is a tendency revealed in that that's present in all of us uh, to want to have a role or to take upon ourselves sometimes a role that is kind of above where we are. Uh, there is the, a book that tells the history of alcoholic Anonymous or AA, and the author, uh, Ernest Kurtz, chose the title of this book to be Not God. And he explains throughout this book that we all have this tendency to believe that we are God. And I read a couple weeks ago a quote from that big book of AA where the author said that we are all actors 
in a play, but we're all trying to run the show. We're all trying to tell the lights to go here. We're all trying to tell the other actors around us to go there and do this. And we're each, though we're just actors, trying to play this role of director. And that leads to chaos. It leads to chaos inside of us. It leads to chaos around us. It leads to all kinds of addictions. And so we need to be reminded over and over. I need to be reminded over and over again, I am not God. (laughs) I'm not God. And you are not God. And we cannot run the show. Now, we are in this section of John that began... Uh, two weeks ago, looking at the festival of tabernacles or Sukkot. And we talked about what would be taking place last week in the water ceremony and some of these elements. And we'll continue that uh, next week as well. But one of the things that I think is important to consider is that during this festival, you would spend the entire week along with your family in a booth or really it's a tent. Now, how many of you all are campers? Any campers? Okay, a couple. So fall's getting here. We've got some really excited ones. Fall is getting here, and so often this is when people go camping. But you would spend this week outside as a family in a temporary shelter or sukkah that you had constructed. And there are a lot of things that are part of this. Ultimately, it was a reminder of when Israel, the people of God, were in the the wilderness or the desert, and God provided for them. And so they are experientially putting themselves in a context like the wilderness, and it is a reminder of their dependence on God, of the fact that they are not God, they are depending on God to provide. And there's a there's a way in which being outside, I mean, think about the wind and the rain and the storms that all kind of come that reminds you in this kind of temporary structure of who God is and who you are. And there is, at the end of the week, this taking down this structure. And one of the ways that the scripture speaks about the human body is that it is a tent. Paul talks about this. And that this tent, like a sukkah, is not permanent. It is very much uh, short-term, it's, it's not permanent. It is impermanent. Does that make sense? And so Psalm 109, teach us to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. We are like grass. We're here today, gone tomorrow. So Sukkot, or the Feast of Festival of Tabernacles, allowed an experience of this, that just as this tent is temporary, so our bodies are. And so we are ultimately dependent on the only one, right, who is eternal, the only one who can actually provide for us. And so the hope was while they could have just told their, you know, Israelite children, hey, one time God provided for us in the wilderness. There's a way in which this full experience allowed them to, to, to have a, a taste of this dependence on God and also to have hope that guess what? Just as God provided in the wilderness, so now here in our lives, in our day, God will provide. We can trust in him. Now, this is something that we need to learn once again over and over to remember who God is and who we are and to avoid the destruction that comes when we live like we are God. So how do we do this? How do we avoid the destruction that comes 
by living like we are God? Well, first we need to know who we are not. And so this group in John chapter 8 of scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they address him as teacher. And they say they are bringing with them this woman who was caught in the act of committing adultery. And so we can imagine kind of the situation and what that would have looked like. Clearly, this is a whole lot of shame. This is a uh, a, a dragging of this woman into public, into this the eyes of this group. And they say, in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, let me ask, are they actually coming to Jesus as a teacher? Do they actually want to know what Jesus thinks that they should do so that they can do it? No, right? That's not at all what they're doing. And and they tell us, verse 6, they ask this to trap him. Have you ever been asked a question? You're like, this is not a question. This is a trap, right? Gotcha questions. Yeah, we all have. Don't point at your spouse. They ask this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So they act by their words as they are coming to Jesus as a judge. And they're using this kind of judicial courtroom language. But in actuality, they are coming to Jesus as the judges. And they are seeking for evidence against Jesus. And they rest the authority, the way that they view themselves, as the authority on the law of Moses. The law of Moses. Now, why is that? Well, their position was this authority or this mantle of Moses. And so they had authority as those who knew the law and who interpreted the law. This was their role. And in many ways, this is how people viewed them. And this is what Jesus is getting at. So because of this authority that they carry with the law of Moses... Jesus is, is very much in conflict with them consistently over that. Uh, he's, he's very much uh, at some level rubbing against this authority. And this is what came up in John chapter 7 verse 19 when Jesus said, didn't Moses give you the law? Of course. Yet, none of you keeps the law. Oh, why are you trying to kill me? So Jesus says, They have this authority of the law, but they're not actually keeping the law of Moses. Now, who is actually keeping the law? Jesus, right? He's the one who actually is keeping the law. They're not, and yet they are coming to accuse him. And get this, their accusation, is it based on anything legitimate that he's broken from the law of Moses? No, he healed a man on the Sabbath, right? Remember, that's what all of this is over. And so it was not actually breaking law. It was actually fulfilling the purpose of the law. And yet it broke their interpretation. And that's where this really, uh, this tension comes from. Because they have to be the ones who are the interpreters. They can't have people not doing the specific things that they interpret the law to do. They can't have all these people walking around with mats, you know, on the Sabbath. And so they can't let this go because it would, it would reduce their authority, their legitimacy. And so they are willing, get this, as this in, attempt to enforce the law of Moses, they are willing to break the law of Moses. Is there a commandment about murder? 
Oh yeah, there is one of those about murdering an innocent man, right? And this is, and this is very much the hypocrisy that's represented here. Well, notice secondly, not only do we know who we are not, and I would say they did not see who they were rightly, we're to know who we are. So they ask this question to Jesus and it's totally a trap. It's totally a gotcha question because if Jesus says to keep the law of Moses and stone this woman, guess what? Out, so we know outside of the Bible that there was a removal of the, the ability, the responsibility to um, justice for, what am I thinking for? When you, when you give someone the death penalty, capital punishment, thank you. I think that was my wife, thank you. Capital punishment. So that ability had been removed and it belonged to Rome, right? So if you wanted someone killed, you needed to go through the Roman process. And ultimately, if they would break that, then they would be killed. Does that make sense? So you go this route, you're in trouble with Rome. But if you say, no, let her go, now you've broken the law of Moses and they've got evidence against you basically with the people who respect the law. So, so that's where either way he goes, he's wrong. And so they're waiting. What is he going to do? Is he going to say stoner and then now we're going to go to Rome and they'll kill him? Or is he going to say don't and now we go to everybody and say, see, he's a fraud. He doesn't care about the law. And what does he do? Now, what is he doing? Why does he respond like this? Well, he stoops, he writes with his finger when they persist in questioning. He stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy 17.6, which says the one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. Why? So think about this situation. Why would it be problematic if there was a single witness who could bring about the execution of this woman? Imagine you had a jealous or just very suspicious husband who was convinced his wife had committed adultery. Well, guess what he could do? Right? So now you need witnesses. You need multiple people who have said, no, we've seen this. We witnessed this. And not only that, but beyond this, uh, they... Verse seven, the witnesses' hands are to be the first in putting him to death. And after that, the hands of all the people, you must purge the evil from you. They, the witness, if we said, hey, we saw this take place, you had to actually pick up that first stone and throw it right in the face of that person who you were accusing. So generally, you are having to take that weight, that burden upon yourself. But beyond that, If you threw that stone and killed that person and it came back that you were a false witness, guess what would happen to you? Same thing. So this law is adding weight to these accusations. It's making these witnesses bear this weight in many ways upon themselves. And so after Jesus asked, who's without sin, right? Whichever one of you is without sin, be that first witness to throw the stone. Now we don't know what Jesus wrote. I've read multiple commentaries this week and there's multiple different guesses as what it was. 
you know, the Ten Commandments. Uh, some people say, some people uh, say there's a, there's a few different passages that it could be. Uh, some people say that there are names that are being written. Uh, all that we know is that somehow this is an act of revelation of their own sinfulness. Uh, and Luke 16, 15, we see a similar situation with Jesus and the Pharisees. And he says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. So he says, you justify yourselves with others, but the problem is God knows what? The heart. Can you deceive God? No. You can deceive other people. And Jesus in John chapter five is really, they, they seek the glory of one another. And so in their minds, the fact that other people will justify their behavior or that other people will give them glory, uh, that, that is what's of ultimate importance. But Jesus says, none of that matters. Because ultimately God sees the heart. He knows what is actually taking place. And so Jesus is bringing this attention off of this woman who has been in the center of this crowd and onto themselves. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older man. Why do you think the older men did it left first? Right? They knew. They had the wisdom of acknowledging what the younger men ultimately all acknowledged, what Paul writes in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we must know who we are not. God, ultimately we know who we are, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But third, we must know who God is. So this woman who was in the center of this crowd is now alone with Jesus. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Now, from a legal standpoint, from the law in Deuteronomy, what does this mean? There are no witnesses. There are no willing participants in this capital punishment process. There's no one who's going to throw the first stone. And so therefore she is free from this obligation. But beyond this, she is left standing before the only one who actually is without sin. She is left standing before the eyes of the one who ultimately all will stand before. And the question is, how will he treat her? How will he address her? Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. And these words, if we've been listening to John, should ring in our ears. And we know John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But then verse 17, and this is what should ring in our ears. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Neither do I condemn you, but to save the world through him. God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to 
repentance. This is the heart of God that is represented in Jesus. And this heart that desires not only to forgive sins, which we'll see ultimately Jesus, Jesus would be the innocent person that the, the only innocent person, and he actually would take the capital punishment. He actually would take the, the, the death, the penalty on the cross to provide forgiveness. But even more than forgiveness, he desires to provide a life of actual freedom, right? He says, go and sin no more. He, he desires as an expression of love for this woman and for us to live a life of freedom from sin. Now, is he saying, okay, from now on, we're starting back at zero, but if you sin again, right? One more time, you're out. Is that it? No, right? Clearly, this is not the expectation. It is this call, and, and all, our mission statement here as a church is reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. And I absolutely believe this, that the only way any person will experience true freedom is through fully surrendering to Jesus. I absolutely believe that. And I believe that a heart of love desires to see people ultimately experience that freedom through fully surrendering their life to Jesus. To acknowledge, I can't, <laughs> right? I can't run the show. I can't control all of the situations in my life. I can't accomplish forgiveness of my own sins. But God can. I surrender completely to him. I believe Jesus purchased the forgiveness of my sins. I believe the power of the spirit provides me with the ability to, to live in the fullness and freedom and joy that God desires for me. This is this true freedom that's found only through full surrender. And so what I want to encourage us to do, so there was a, tri there was a process of, the, of focus that was found in this passage. First, all eyes were on the woman. This woman was the center of attention. She was the center of this ring. She was the center of the questioning. But then the attention moved from this woman when? Once again, when Jesus knelt down. What is he writing? Suddenly the attention is no longer on the woman, it's where? It's on Jesus. What is he doing? But then Jesus moves the attention where? When he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. Where does that move the focus? Back to their own heart. And I believe this is the process that needs to take place for us this morning. And we need to ask the question, where am I focused on the sins of others? In my body, how I feel, in my mind, how I think. How have I been focused on the sins of another person? And this is where we need to acknowledge that we are not God. <laughs> we are not capable 
of bringing the judgment and the justice that God can bring. But secondly, we may be focused not simply on the sins of others, but we may be focused on the judgment of others. Where, where in your life, in the way that you feel, in the thoughts that you think, are you focused on the eyes and the judgment of others? Where they, and I've experienced this this week personally, where the opinions of others, the actions of others feel like they are what is ultimate, what is most important, what determines my worth, what will provide me with security. Where, where have I moved the weight of my security and my identity onto other people? In response to that, we need to hear the words that they are not God. So where I am holding the stone focused on the sins of others, I remember I am not God. Where I am fearing the hypothetical stones, the weight, I remember they are not God. Guess what? There is one God. I can't run the show. (laughs) They can't run the show. He can run the show. He can handle it. And so we must surrender to him. I can't, they can't, but God can. And so I want to invite us into that surrender. I believe we're going to take communion in just a moment, but that is an expression of our surrender. So I want to invite us just to ask two questions as we move to this time of surrender, of expressing our full surrender to Jesus. What do I need to receive from God? What if maybe I'm trying to accomplish or provide for myself or from other people that I need to receive from God? This may be strength. This may be the power to forgive others. This may be, and ultimately is for all of us, forgiveness. Only God can offer me true and full forgiveness in Christ. What do I need to receive from God? And secondly, what do I need to release to God? What are the sins that I'm holding on to? What about the bitterness, the unforgiveness that I'm holding on to in my heart? What do I need to release to God? And so uh, we have deacons that are coming around. If you don't have the communion elements, would you just raise your hands if you want those? And they will make sure that you get those elements. But I'm gonna let the band to come on up and and just invite us into this, this time of response. And, and maybe if you're here and you've never truly surrendered to Jesus, you've never really surrendered to Jesus, that's what I want to invite you to do today. To say, I can't. I am a sinner, but I cannot purchase forgiveness for my sins. And I, can, I cannot provide myself with freedom from my sins. I trust completely in Jesus. I trust in his life lived in my place, his death to pay for my sins, his resurrection to free me from the power of sin and to give me eternal life. And if you've never done that, I would invite you to do that. Just surrender. God, I surrender my life to you. Jesus, I surrender to be a follower of you the rest of my days. If you want to do that, I invite you to do that now. I'll be in the prayer room after the service. Would love to talk with you about that at that time. But for all of us, if we just prepare our hearts, I want to just 
encourage us, for those of us who have trusted Christ, what do I need to receive from God and what do I need to release to God? So I just invite you just to ask those questions in your heart as we prepare to take communion. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.